In every class that we have on the seven churches, we tend to go through the background and some of the symbolic overview of what the church might represent before we get into the details of each of the verses. So I'm going to talk about a little bit of the history, the background, and the conditions associated with the city of Pergamos that would have affected the church there before we get into each of the individual verses. In the King James Version, the name of this city is called Pergamus. Though in ancient documents written about this city outside of the Bible, it's very often referred to as Pergamum. Pergamus is the feminine form of the word, and Pergamum is the neuter form of the same word. So I may refer to it as Pergamus or Pergamum, but I just want you to realize that I'm talking about the same thing. Pergamum can mean citadel. And one reason for this might be due to the fact that the central structures of this city were built on top of an imposing granite hill that rose about a thousand feet above the valley below. This was a tall conical type of a hill that dominated the valley of the river Caicos. From the top of this hill where the highest portions of the city were located, you could see the Mediterranean Sea about 15 miles away. This city was 60 to 70 miles north of Smyrna, and today it's essentially the modern city of Bergama in Turkey. Its population in ancient times was estimated somewhere between 120,000 and 200,000, the latter being about the size of Akron, Ohio, and large for a city of this period. Of that large population, it's believed that a third or more of the populace of the city were slaves. Pergamus wasn't on any of the major roads like Ephesus and Smyrna, and it wasn't a port on the sea, but historically it was considered by many writers as the greatest of the cities of Asia Minor. It never did achieve the commercial greatness of Ephesus or of Smyrna, but it was a center of culture that surpassed both of them. Pliny, who was the governor of Bithynia, called it by far the most famous city in Asia. And archaeologist Sir William Ramsey said that beyond all other cities in Asia Minor, it gives the traveler the impression of a royal city and the home of authority. In the period of the Greek Empire, it was the capital of Alexander the Great's successor, Lysimachus. And Pergamum was also the name of the kingdom that covered most of Asia Minor that that city was once the capital of. It was the capital of the, of the Roman province of Asia for two centuries after its last king, Attalus III, bequeathed it, along with the kingdom of Pergamum, to Rome in 133 BC. Just as with the other cities we've discussed already, Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum was a major cultural and religious center. Pergamus and Ephesus often competed in history to be the preeminent city of Asia Minor, and by the time of Revelation, Ephesus looks like it was rising to a level of more prominence than Pergamus. The economy and much of the revenue that came into Pergamus was based on agricultural and manufactured goods, and many of the people worked as dyers and makers of cloth. It was also known for parchment and fine pottery, as well as fish dealers. As a cultural center, it had temples, gymnasiums, markets, and even a theater that could house 10,000 spectators. Pergamus was the home of Critodemus, who was the earliest Greek astrologer or astronomer. It was famous for a huge library, for that time at least, of 200,000 parchment scrolls that at that time in history was second only in size to the Library of Alexandria in Egypt. You realize the Library of Alexandria in Egypt was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So that's a pretty significant statement that this was the second largest library behind the one that was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Some believe parchment was actually invented, or at least developed for major use in Pergamus. 
King Amenes II, around 200 BC, decided to build the library in Pergamos, and he recruited, in quotes, he recruited Aristophanes, who was the librarian of the Library of Alexandria, to come and oversee it. When the Egyptian king found out that Eumenes had tried to recruit away his librarian, he was enraged and imprisoned Aristophanes, and he banned the export of papyrus to Pergamum, which is what forced its scholars to find an alternative writing material. At that time, a lot of the writing materials for documents, for scrolls and such, were papyrus coming principally from the area of Egypt. So because the Egyptian king was angry at the king of Pergamus that for trying to steal his librarian, he cut him off from getting any papyrus to aid him in building that library. It forced the scholars of Pergamus to find a different type of writing material, and some believe this is when parchment really began to be used. It actually was already in use before this, but not in the quality or to the degree that it was developed by Pergamon. The word parchment actually comes from the phrase Pergamena Carta, paper of Pergamum. So that alone tells you how significant Pergamum was in developing parchment. And it's helped to preserve the earliest copies of the Bible, which were written on parchment. This library at Pergamus was later moved by Antony to Egypt and presented to Cleopatra. Pergamum was famous, or perhaps we might say infamous, for its pagan religious practices and temples. It is interesting how many of the seven cities that these letters are written to were major centers of pagan religion. In Pergamus, there were four major pagan deities and many other minor deities that were worshipped. The major deities were Zeus, Athena, Dionysius, Cathagamon, and Asclepius. Athena was Pergamum's patron goddess. Her temple included colonnades and statuary celebrating the defeat of the Celts, and it stood on the Acropolis next to the library. Also near the crown of the Acropolis on the hillside stood a great 40-foot-high outdoor altar to Zeus. It's one of the most famous monuments of Pergamus. The full structure of it that the altar was built on is approximately 100 feet by 100 feet in size. It was built during the reign of the same king, Yemenes II, who was building the great library in the first half of the 2nd century BC. It was essentially located in front of the Temple of Athena, near the top of the great hill the city was built on, and it stood on a projecting ledge of rock that looked exactly like a great throne on the hillside. If you were standing far below the city and looked up, where this altar of Zeus was located looked like a great throne. I'll probably come back to this, but some have said that may be what was meant by Satan's seat being here, that it was a very poetic way of referring to this great altar, though there are other beliefs about that as well that we'll come back to. Asclepius, the god of medicine, was very prominent in the city of Pergamum, and his worship was very central to that city. The name Asclepius is where we get our word scalpel from. And the sign of Asclepius is the coiled snake on a pole that's still associated with medicine today, and you sometimes still see it in pictures associated with medicine or the medical field. Many of the ancient coins of Pergamum have a serpent as part of their design, almost certainly for this reason. The temple of Asclepius had a famous school of medicine attached to it, and it attracted many visitors that would seek help for different ailments and conditions they were dealing with physically. The healing work of the temple was partly the work of the priests and partly the work of what you might call doctors, though we probably wouldn't call them doctors in the modern sense. There were a number of miraculous cures that were reported as occurring here, and it drew a great deal of attention to Pergamus, caused a lot of tourists, so to speak, a lot of pilgrims to come there for that reason. 
The process of somebody coming to the temple for a healing was that first the priest would interview any potential patients to determine whether they were acceptable for healing. And they would turn away people that were dying or women that were ready to deliver babies. They didn't want the patient's death, if it occurred, to taint their God, you know, especially to taint his reputation. Someone might say, well, my relative was dying and we took him to Asclepius Temple there in Pergamos and he died anyway. That would undermine the reputation of what they wanted associated with their God, which was his miraculous healing. Patients would be led through an underground tunnel to a huge treatment room where they slept, probably after being drugged, and they waited to receive a vision showing their treatment or testifying to the fact they had supposedly been healed. And then they would reveal this vision to the priest who would in turn prescribe treatments based on what the patient saw in the vision. William Barclay stated that sufferers were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple. There were tame snakes there. And in the night, the sufferer might be touched by one of these tame and harmless snakes as it glided over the ground on which he lay. And the touch of the snake was held to be the touch of the God himself. And that touch was believed to bring health and healing. Patterson stated that part of the temple complex included various baths, some of which were rather unique engineering achievements that enabled the raising or lowering of water so that those immersed were unable to account for the phenomenon. In other words, it would seem like it was magical, the water was going up and down, but it was a mechanical process. He goes on to say, some suggest the rising of these waters would be an indication that Asclepius had honored their request for healing. A long tunnel connected the bathhouse area with a solarium, and there were small apertures on top of the tunnel that enabled the priests of Asclepius to speak promising words to the devotees who were walking through the tunnel in search of healing. Arriving in the solarium, some sources indicate the presence of hundreds of non-poisonous snakes whose permanent residence was the solarium. With the assistance of drugs, a participant in the activities of the solarium might sleep for a period of time during which contact with one of the serpents could result in healing. So he gives a similar explanation to what Barclay did, just a little bit more detail. According to some of the ancient writers, once a patient was healed, they would bow down on their knees before a statue of Asclepius, thank him for the healing, and give gifts to him and to, of course, his temple and his priesthood. According to some traditions, they would inscribe the name and the ailment from which they were cured on a large white stone as a testimony to their God. If this is true, Jesus' statement to the overcomers regarding a white stone being given to them could refer to him being the only true healer, whether physically or spiritually. Though there could be other interpretations, and we'll look at those when we get to the white stone in the 17th verse. The most common full title used for Asclepius, interestingly enough, is Asclepius Soter, which means Asclepius the Savior. So you can see how that would have been something that would have been highly offensive to Christians, not only because Asclepius was a false god, but that one of his titles was the Savior, which was a title for Christ. For these reasons, some believe that it's Asclepius' religious operation, his temple and his activity, that might be what's being referred to as Satan's seat here. The most famous patient of this temple was Aelius Aristides, who was the leading orator of the period about a generation or so after the time of the writing of the book of Revelation. And the most famous member of the medical staff of this temple was Galen, who was a native of Pergamum and received his early training there. He started his medical work by caring for injured gladiators and eventually became the court physician of Emperor Marcus Aurelius about a century after the time of Revelation. Galen was one of the classical founders of scientific medicine, along with his rival Hippocrates. 
Another thing that Pergamus had as one of its central religious activities was worship of the Roman emperor and the empire in general. It was very dominant in Pergamus, and it could also be what is being referred to as Satan's seat here. The first temple of the imperial cult of emperor worship in all of Asia Minor was located here in Pergamus in 29 BC. It was dedicated to the emperor Augustus and to the Roman Empire. Pictures of it are found on coins through the first century AD. And they show the temple housing the statue of Augustus in military garb with a spear in his right hand. And some show the goddess Roma, who's the goddess that represents the Roman Empire, placing a victory crown on the emperor's head. Games were often held in Pergamus in honor of the emperor. And the cities of Asia would send vocal groups to Pergamum to sing praises to the emperor and his household on imperial birthdays and other holidays. So it certainly was a center of emperor worship, which is, as I said, another reason some believe it might be referred to as the seat of Satan. The Zondervan Encyclopedia of the Bible says that a Pergaminian coin shows the emperor Caracalla standing spear in hand before a great serpent twined around a bending sapling. He raises his right hand in a salute that Hitler's Nazis brought back to another world. Pausanias, who has left descriptions of his journeys in the Mediterranean lands, describes the same god enthroned with a staff in one hand and the other on the head of a serpent. Christians must have found the cult of the god of healing in his serpent-infested temple peculiarly revolting. The Zonervan Encyclopedia goes on to say that Pausanias also describes the throne-like altar to Zeus on top of the crag above the city. It was discovered in 1871 and taken to Germany, where it stands reconstructed today in Berlin's Pergamon Museum. It includes steps leading up to a great altar and a frieze that represents the gods of Olympus battling with giants shown in the sculpture as a brood of muscular warriors with snake-like tails. Zeus, to whom the altar was dedicated, was also called Zeus the Savior, which would have been another offense to Christian minds. Pergamus and the church in Pergamus is not mentioned directly anywhere else in the Bible other than here in this letter in Revelation 2. And it's uncertain when or through whom the gospel came to Pergamus. Paul's ministry in Ephesus might have reached here. Ephesus is about 100 miles away. Later traditions place John here at some point, though they're not certain. There's no biblical basis for that. It's just tradition. There was a Jewish community that existed at Pergamum since at least the 100s BC, and it may be that the message of the gospel was first preached at Pergamum when Jews who lived in the area accepted Christ, when they were in other cities, or even in Israel for a feast period, like on the day of Pentecost. You notice all the locations the people that were there on the day of Pentecost came from. Many of them would have been going back to those locations after the time of the Feast of Pentecost. And it's certain that if they had accepted Christ there on the day of Pentecost, it's certain they would have taken that back to their homes and it very well could have reached Pergamum in that way. Bible scholar Simon Kistemaker describes the situation for the church in Pergamum very poetically. And I'm going to quote his exact words. He said, notice that the Greek word soter applied to both Zeus and Asclepius means Savior. In view of their Savior, Jesus Christ, it was impossible for Christians to acknowledge these gods as saviors. In addition, they could never utter the motto, Caesar is Lord, because for them the title Lord was reserved for Jesus only, and of course for God as well. Instead of the 200,000 or more volumes in the Pergamum Library, they came only with the scriptures. In place of the numerous temples, they had no temple, and they said that their Christian fellowship and even their physical bodies served as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in lieu of Asclepius' healing, the Christians taught that Jesus was their great physician. In brief, for Christians, life in Pergamum was made nearly unbearable. 
As with all these churches, I did want to give you some background on the conditions in Pergamum, some of its history, because I do think it gives you a good idea of what the church there would have been dealing with and what their major challenges might have been. And then as you look at the other verses, they may make quite a bit more sense to you what Jesus could be referring to when you see the kind of environment that this church was in. All right, who will read Revelation 2, 12 to 17 for us? Go ahead, Sister Debbie, read it out good and loud. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath in here, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Christ said to the angel of the church of Pergamos, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. What do you think he's referring to when he says he has a sharp sword with two edges? Old and New Testament. Okay, well you're getting even more deeper than the surface level answer, Brother Lee. Brother Lee said the Old and the New Testament. I do think there's several different things that can represent. Brother Lee gave you one of them, and I think this is true of some things, that it could mean either or both of these things, and it could that this two-edged sword is the two edges of the Old and the New Testament. That's a possibility you'd come to based on first determining that a sword represents the Word of God, right? You'd first have to realize that the sword itself represents the Word of God before you'd start thinking about what its two edges could be, because its two edges could be something else if it wasn't the Word of God, couldn't they? I want to talk about why the sword is almost certainly the Word of God, but I wouldn't have any problem whatsoever with the theory that might represent the Old and New Testament. I also think there's two edges to the Word of God in a little bit deeper way, and that is that one edge of the Word of God will deliver and one will destroy. The Word of God is an instrument of judgment, and it can judge you to be worthy or it can judge you unworthy, depending on how your life matches up to the Word of God. And so there is an aspect of the Word of God that might be represented by these two edges, that one side will cut you off from God and one side will cut you off from the world. One side will cut you off from life, one side will cut you off from death. But why would we even believe that this sword represents the Word of God? What are we basing that on? Is that just arbitrary that we've just decided, you know, that sounds nice to say that the Word of God's a sword? Or do we have some biblical basis for believing that the Word of God could be referred to as a sword? What in the Bible is an example of a proof text for us using this passage to conclude that this sword is the Word of God? Put on the whole armor of God. Okay. And in that list of armor, what does it tell us about the sword? Hebrews 4.12. Okay. Brother Kosa, go ahead. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Ah. 
piercing even the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit joints and marrow and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart now notice the first part brother kosa read the word of god is quick and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword well you might say that's just making a comparison with how a sword cuts but i think when you take another verse which is the one sister cindy was referring to into consideration you'll realize that a sword can be a picture of the word of god you got it sister cindy ephesians 6 17th verse. This is the clearest statement in the Bible that tells us that the Word of God can be pictured by a sword, symbolized by a sword. What does it say? And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So that very literally tells us that the Word of God is referred to as a sword. There's some other examples of that as well in the Bible. Some of them, you have to read between the lines and realize what he's talking about. Like in Isaiah 49, the second verse says, He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. That's a messianic statement about Christ. So I'm a God has made his mouth like a sharp sword. Well, what's coming out of his mouth? The word of God. Later in Revelation, we see a sword coming out of Christ's mouth. That tells you that he's the fulfillment of this passage in Isaiah 49, when it says he's made my mouth like a sharp sword. That means his mouth is full of the word of God. Psalms 45 is another figurative statement, but it's absolutely talking about the Messiah. And it uses this same word sword to refer to something he bears. This is the psalmist talking about the king. What he may not have realized is that he was talking about a greater king than any human king when he was writing this psalm. Prophetically, this is talking about the king of kings. This is talking about Christ. It says, Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore, God hath blessed thee forever. And listen to this phrase. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty. With thy glory and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. This is a description of Christ in his position of ruling and reigning. Kind of description you're going to see of him during the millennial reign. And one of the things we see there is that he's got a sword girded on his thigh. It's the word of God that is the weapon that he's using to judge this world. Then Revelation 1.16 said he had in his right hand seven stars. This is talking about Jesus. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Four verses after the verse we just read in Revelation 2.12 that we started with in Revelation 2.12. He says, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Another example of this in Revelation is in 1915. This is another passage that is undoubtedly talking about Christ when he's returning to rule and reign. It says in the 15th verse, Out of his mouth goeth forth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. Notice again when it's describing him with this sword, it's talking about him coming to rule and reign. It's an instrument of judgment on the earth. You know, you don't need to be afraid of the edge of the sword of the word of God if you're on the right side. You don't have to fear anything. The worst that it will do in terms of you is to free you. If you're seeking God, if you're in right relationship with God, the sword of the word of God isn't something you need to be fearful of. It's something that will deliver you. It'll cut away the things that are keeping you from deeper relationship, closer relationship with God. It'll cut away the flesh. It's one of its deeper, more allegorical meanings is that it is a blade that cuts away the flesh so that all that's left is the spiritual man. 
This passage in Revelation 19.15 is related to the fourth verse of Isaiah 11, which again is another messianic passage. It says, With righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Hosea 6.5, he says, Therefore have I hewed them. Let's talk about Judah and Israel. They were the ones that were hewed. By the prophets, I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. Hewed is the kind of word we use. We don't use it today unless you're talking in a pretty archaic way, but it's a way of like chopping at something, chopping it down, you know, cutting it down. He used the word of God to judge his people. His people should have been measuring up to the word of God, and because they didn't, it was what judged them. And it was the prophets who spoke God's word. That was what was hewing Judah and Israel. It was the words of the prophets. That was God's word. In Deuteronomy 32, 39 to 43, he says, See, now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me, I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. Now listen to what he describes as one of his instruments of judgment and authority. If I wet, that means to sharpen, if I wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine enemies drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. And that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. So there's mercy and there's justice in that passage, isn't there? If you're one of his people, you don't have to fear when he sharpens his terrible sword. That shouldn't cause you any fear at all. But I'm going to tell you, when he sharpens his terrible sword, some are going to be cut off from him by that sword. And that's part of the picture in Deuteronomy 32, is that he's going to have mercy on some and he's going to bring justice on others. His sword will bring terrible judgment. Again, you might just say that just represents his power. Just a very poetic way of referring to his power. But very clearly, there are examples in the Bible where the sword is the word of God. So I want you to consider that most of these passages that are very symbolic like this, that very likely is the underlying meaning. That's the instrument he'll use. Psalm 7 is another one from around 11 to 13. It says, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. There's that sharpening of his sword again. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. This is another example of God wetting his sword in judgment. A little later in that 19th chapter of Revelation, there's another example of Jesus being described having this sword coming out of his mouth. It's in the 21st verse. It says, The remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with flesh. This is the word of God that's bringing this judgment down. The way the word of God brings judgment down isn't particularly complicated. If God says something is sin, when it's declared to be sin by his word and individuals reject that declaration of God's word, then God's word will judge them. And eventually destruction will come upon them. It can come upon them in a lot of ways. It doesn't have to come by a natural sword. Just because they're being struck with a spiritual sword doesn't mean it has to come through a natural sword. It could come through some disaster. It could come through some terrible war that occurs, nuclear holocaust or anything else that may happen that'll bring terrible destruction down on God's enemies. But what starts that process is that God's sword is involved. His word is involved. 
and his word is what brings about the judgment. As I said, it brings it about either in a positive or a negative way. If you have measured up to the requirements of the word of God, if you are in obedience to the word of God, judgment for you should be something you would be thrilled to receive. You know why? Because you're going to receive judgment of everlasting life and immortality. There are two different kinds of eternal judgment you can receive. Eternal judgment that's destruction and eternal judgment that's everlasting life and immortality. If you get eternally judged to be worthy of everlasting life and immortality, you're done. Once that judgment's been passed, you're done. Your race has been run. If you've been judged for destruction, you're done. The Word of God can do either one of those things. It has everything to do with whether or not the Word of God is delivering you or it's bringing you under judgment. Sometimes it has to start with bringing us under judgment before it can deliver us. We hear the Word of God, the preaching or teaching the Word of God, or we read it and we realize that we are worthy of judgment. We realize that that sword is hanging over our heads, so to speak, and it causes us to turn to the Lord. And then the very instrument that was a weapon of destruction toward us becomes an instrument of deliverance. The more we learn about it, the more we understand it, the more we follow its dictates and its instructions, the more we can be certain of life. So you see how it has both sides. That's important to understand. So we're there in Revelation 19.21, that sword was coming out of his mouth. Again, as part of the judgments associated with the Battle of Armageddon and the Millennial Reign. And you can read each of these on your own. I'll just maybe touch on a couple parts of each. But that's what Isaiah 27 and Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 66 are talking about. Some of these very same elements that are here. Isaiah 27, 1 says, In that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan the piercing serpent, even Leviathan that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now there's a dragon in the sea of humanity, isn't there? The spirit of that dragon has pervaded the sea of humanity. We talk about the sea in the Bible. I know you all know this, but there's a very simple passage you can go to to find out what that represents symbolically. When the angel is showing John all these different things, and one of the things is, is that this city that represents this harlot is sitting on many waters. And when the angel explains it to John, he says the many waters, the waters of the sea, so to speak, are peoples and nations, kindreds, multitudes, tongues racial and national groups that make up the race of man. That's the sea. That sea can be very still when there's peace, when perhaps God has brought judgment or calmed the sea. And that sea can be a turbulent mess. That's why in Isaiah it says that the wicked are like the troubled sea, and they cast up dirt and mire. You notice a little later in the Bible, you're going to see a sea of glass. So there's different ways that the scripture uses the word sea. And you need to realize when it's being used in a very symbolic way like this, it's usually referring to the world of mankind. A sea is something that's almost always in a state of unrest, you know. It very seldom is still. There's always something moving around under the surface. The tidal pools, waves, and winds that affect the waves and other things going on that causes the sea, the oceans, to be in a state of unrest. That's the sea of mankind that's being talked about. So when it says that he's going to punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, that crooked serpent, it'll slay the dragon that's in the sea. There is a dragon influencing and causing things to occur in the sea of mankind, stirring up currents in the sea of mankind, stirring up waves in the sea of mankind. It's something much bigger than any single human being, much bigger than any single human nation. 
There is a dragon that is behind many of the cultural movements and the changes that happen at the global level. So what is it talking about when it says that with his sword he's going to slay that dragon that's in the sea? The power of his word is certainly what that powerful sword is referring to. You notice that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he didn't pick up a physical weapon and try to fight Satan. What did he do? What was his weapon of offense and defense against the temptations? The word of God. The word of God brought a stop to Satan's influence in that wilderness when he was trying to tempt Jesus, didn't it? One of these days, the word of God is going to bring a permanent stop to Satan. Isaiah 34, from about the first through the eighth verse, it says, Come near, ye nations, to hear and hearken, you people. Let the earth hear and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain shall also be cast out and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. This is talking about the millennial reign from Armageddon on into the millennial reign. And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. And all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine and as a falling fig from the fig tree. You're going to see the same exact language in Revelation, you know, talking about the events of that day. For my sword, this is God speaking, for my sword shall be bathed in heaven. It shall come down upon Ijemea and upon the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has made a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Ijemea. And the unicorns shall come down upon them, and the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of the recompenses for the controversy of Zion. So there has been a war that's been going on against God's people. You might spiritualize all this, but I happen to think some of it's going to be a judgment on the Muslim nations. I think that's part of what this is referring to. Some elements could be spiritualized, but you notice that he's talking about Ijemea very specifically, which is part of what you consider the area around Palestine and certainly part of what now today would be Islamic. And then he's talking about the year of the recompenses for the controversy of Zion. There's been a war over the people of God, over the land, over the city. It has been a controversy that has been going on for centuries now. There's going to be a recompense for the way that the people that were descended from Edom and from some of those other ancient tribes, which are now many of the Muslims, there is going to be a recompense for the way they've treated their brothers, the Jews. That's part of what this represents. It may very well have a spiritual application as well to a larger scale element, but I think there's a simple historical application as well. Then Isaiah 66, 15 to 16 says, Behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord will be many. Again, this example is a sword of the Lord. Sometimes referring to the power of his word, sometimes referring to the word itself. I'll give you some other examples of how the sword is used in the Bible for something that is symbolic of the Word of God. In a very deeply symbolic passage in Song of Solomon 3, you realize in the Song of Solomon that Solomon is a picture of Christ. The bride that he's going to marry is a picture of the bride of Christ. 
The seventh and eighth verse of Song of Solomon 3 says, Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. And that word is actually not a bed that you would sleep in. It's what they call a palanquin, which is like a platform almost that is raised up and carried by bearers to move someone in a position of great power or royalty from one place to another. It might be carried on the shoulders of someone. It's almost like what we think of as a carriage, but it's being carried by individuals. It says, Behold his bed, which is Solomon's, three score, so sixty. Valiant men are about her to the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. If you're trying to examine what that might mean symbolically, this is pretty deep, so follow the pieces. Number one, Solomon is certainly a picture of Christ in the Song of Solomon. So this is Christ's church that it's talking about. Around it are 60 valiant men. What would the number 60 mean to us in the Bible? Or here's what you do when you're coming up to numbers that you think might be symbolic of something like in a prophecy or some symbolic passage like this. You see if you can find the number 60 in the Bible and if it is clearly representing something. Or you see if you can find a combination of numbers in the number 60 that might represent something. Because God uses both of those kind of methods to hide the symbolic meaning of numbers in the Bible. Sometimes the number itself just represents something. Sometimes it's the pieces and parts that make up the number, whether it's a multiple of that number or what numbers make it up. Number five in the Bible is, in some cases, symbolic of the ministry because the five offices of the ministry in Ephesians 4. The number 12 in the Bible is, without doubt, symbolic of government. If you were to try to divide this up, one way it might be divided up, try to figure out what it represents, is that 60 is 5 times 12. So if it's talking about a government that is constituted of the ministry, the ministry is God's government. You might see how that would be something that would be a protective cordon, a protective barrier around the church. You know, it's the ministry that are to be the under shepherds to the great shepherd that are to protect the church. So it could be a picture of the ministry around the church. Notice that all of these 60 valiant men are carrying swords on their side, which means these are people who are skilled with the word of God, if you're going to look at it in a symbolic way. Remember the sword in the Bible, if it's used in a symbolic passage, is most often referring to the word of God, the authority of the word of God, power of the word of God, the judging power of the word of God, the delivering element or even protective element of the word of God, all these different things that it could represent. Jeremiah 48.10 says, Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully, and cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. Some have taken that as a very deeply symbolic statement that if somebody is a minister or a prophet in the Old Testament period, somebody that was a priest or a prophet or someone that was one who was intended to communicate the word of God to the people, or in the New Testament sense, someone that was a minister, has to be careful not to keep back his sword from blood, meaning if there's something evil going on, The Word of God is the instrument that's intended to judge it. And if you are afraid to judge it, or if you want to have more mercy than God has towards something that God is expecting to be addressed, you'll be keeping back your sword from blood, you know. Because sometimes that's the only thing that will allow someone to be delivered is for them to get a cut from the sword of the Word of God. I don't mean in some angry way by a minister or in some kind of humiliating way. I happen to think most often when these kind of cuts come, it's that the minister doesn't even know he's doing the cutting. That, to me, is one of the most common ways it occurs. I've had people come up sometimes and I've preached on something that I wasn't thinking of a single soul. I didn't know anything about whatever it was they were struggling with. And they came up to me later and were talking about how something I said really brought them under conviction and they really wanted to straighten up. And I thought to myself, I didn't even know they were dealing with that particular issue. 
but the sword of the word of God cut that. Now, if I had been standing there and saying, well, I'm not going to talk about sin. People might get mad if I talk about sin. I'm not going to talk about how we better live a better life. People might get frustrated with that. They just want to hear about how they're really good right now and they don't need to straighten up. But you don't want to keep back the sword from drawing blood. But you also don't want to have a spirit that wants to draw blood either. Sometimes ministers, if they don't keep the right spirit, can have a spirit that enjoys drawing blood. You like cutting at people. You like using the word of God as a battering or an intimidating instrument. That is not what it's for. His word should intimidate you if you're in disobedience to it. But we ought not to get a spirit where we are wanting to hurt people or wanting to strike people. That's why one of the statements about ministers in terms of looking for the qualities of a man who would be a good minister is that they aren't strikers. A striker isn't just somebody that might strike, it's somebody that likes to strike. Somebody that is given to striking, somebody that that's part of their personality. They're pugnacious. You know what pugnacious is? It means they like to fight. They enjoy fighting. That's not a spirit that the ministry should have. The ministry should not enjoy fighting. They should enjoy making peace, but sometimes you have to fight to get the peace. That verse in Jeremiah ties pretty well into the 13th chapter of Romans, which has been taken several different ways. Some believe this is just talking about civil rulers, that you should have respect for civil authority, as long as, of course, that civil authority doesn't try to get you to compromise your faith. Others believe this is talking about spiritual authority, and I think that it is just as likely, if not more likely, to be talking about the latter says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now I want you to think about this. If that was only secular civil powers, what if you're resisting them because they're trying to hurt your family? What if you're resisting them because they're trying to abuse their power? What if you're resisting them because they're trying to get you to compromise your faith or to do something evil? You have to be able to resist secular power. Our entire nation is based on the idea they believed in great part that they had the backing of God to resist the British Empire the way they did. What not you think about that? They did not believe that this type of a verse was talking about how no matter how you're treated by the secular powers, you have to not resist them because if you resist them, you'll receive damnation. I can't imagine the patriots of this nation when they were founding this nation, because of what they did when they were founding this nation and breaking from Britain, are going to eventually receive damnation for resisting that civil power. Nor would I think if some civil power was doing something evil, you'd receive damnation for resisting it. Even though they didn't necessarily go on the offensive, as you well know, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel all resisted the civil power. The civil power said, here's the law. They said, that law doesn't apply to me. If that law causes me to have to break the law of God, doesn't apply to me. I'm under a higher law. That's resisting the civil power. So that's a strong reason why many would think this is talking about the ministry. This is talking about spiritual authorities from God, through Christ, through the ministry. So let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there's no power but of God. Now, if we're talking about the ministry, that makes perfect sense. There's no power that's a power in God's kingdom that God didn't put there. There's people that might try to rise up to take power in God's kingdom. There's been men who weren't called, who were not intended to have a position of power that rose up. But if they're a true power, listen, here's the point, a true power, not just someone in a position, but somebody who really has the power to back up the position. 
You know how you know they got the power? I'm not talking about intimidation. I'm not talking about the fact that they have the control of the purse strings or they've got the control of enough of the majority of the people that they can frighten you into leaving the church or something else. I'm talking about someone that has power with God that you know has power with God. You can see it in their life. You can hear it in their words. You can feel it in their presence that they have power with God. That's how you know somebody is one of those higher powers. Not because they're just in a position of authority. Somebody can steal a position of authority. Somebody can usurp a position of authority. But you cannot usurp real power. It has to be given to you from above. He says the powers that be are ordained of God. The powers that be, I'm going to put a couple words in here to clarify what I think is really intended. The powers that are true powers are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive themselves damnation. Now here's what that would mean in a New Testament sense if it is talking about the authorities in the church. That just means if somebody is preaching or teaching the word of God and it is God's word and God ordained the individual to preach it and is anointing it, if you resist it, you are going to receive damnation for resisting it. You know why? Because you're resisting God. It's God's word spoken through a man of God. It's God's word. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Somebody that's in a position of authority, if you're doing good, you don't have to be afraid of anyone in a position of authority. It's when you're doing wrong that you have to be concerned. So if you're talking to an honest-hearted person, there's no need to ever worry about being intimidated by anybody in a leadership position who has authority. If you're honest-hearted and willing to serve God, you don't ever have to be fearful of them. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. Now here's where it brings the word sword in. For he beareth not the sword in vain. If that is meant in a symbolic way, in the same way the sword is used in a number of these places in the New Testament, it very likely may be referring to the fact that he has the authority of the word of God behind him. He has a knowledge and an authority in God's word. And he's not doing it in vain. God gave him that knowledge and authority for a reason. It's there to either deliver or bring damnation. That's the two sides of the sword in terms of its cutting edge. It will either deliver you or it'll bring damnation to you. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause pay you tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Now, there's some, as I said, who believe that's talking about civil powers, but I think it is much more likely when you consider the context that it's talking about spiritual authorities. It might be true on some level of civil powers. You have to respect people in civil authority. I'm always surprised when people encounter police officers and they want to argue with them, they want to get smart with them, they want to curse at them or fight with them or something else. Why would you think that would make the situation better? Why would you think that's going to get you off easier if you give the person a hard time who's in authority? Common sense should tell you if somebody's in authority, you want to be as polite and courteous and respectful to them as you can. Treat them in a respectful way. By the way, treat them in a respectful way even if they don't treat you that way. Because you will demonstrate the Christian faith in a better way doing that than if you got in a fight with them. So it is true of civil powers to a measure. To the measure that civil powers are just. But not just just by our definition. I mean just spiritually. When a civil power tries to do something that's going to do spiritual damage to you, you have to resist that civil power. If civil powers try to force some evil upon you, you have to resist it. 
Even our voting system, whether you realize it or not, is a resistance against civil power. Because if civil power tries to rise up to try to bring in some new and perverse condition into our nation, we do, in this nation, have the ability to vote them out of that position of power. So there are ways you can even resist certain movements in terms of the civil powers in our day. Now, they didn't have that ability back then. Another example is 149th Psalm. Sixth verse says, Let the high praises of God be in their mouth. Talking about the people of God. And a two-edged sword in their hand. Now, you almost have to be certain that's not talking about anything literal. They're walking around with a bared blade in one hand and crying out praise to God. Well, there's examples where it happened. You know the story of in Nehemiah's day when they were building on the wall. They were building with one hand, basically, and holding a weapon with the other, some of them. But this isn't talking about a natural sword. This is talking about a spiritual sword. That means you ought to have the high praises of God in your mouth, and you ought to have the word of God. And here's what the purpose of that's going to be. And I think this is talking about very potentially the bride or other elements of the government of God during the millennial reign as well. To execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written, this honor have all his saints. Praise ye the Lord. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Talking about having the honor to be able to execute individuals and bring them into captivity. It's going to be something that some people are going to have his holy ones. The word saints in the Old Testament, where we get it in the New Testament, comes from the Hebrew word that means holy ones. So those that are the holy ones of God are going to have that position to carry out judgment on this earth. They're going to have a two-edged sword in their hand. It's the same sword that's coming out of the mouth of Christ in those very picturesque passages. It's the word of God. That's the authority, power they have. There's a number of other symbolic examples of a sword being very likely a picture of the word of God in the Bible. Some of them pretty deep. One of them is in Genesis, the third chapter. Once the first couple are cast out of Eden, Adam and Eve are driven out of Eden. God placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way, keep the way of the tree of life. Now, it could be that there were cherubim there with a literal flaming sword between them. I don't have any problem with that, but it certainly represents something deeper than just a natural sword or even some kind of a spiritual power that was there that just appeared like a sword. In order to get back into an Edenic state of relationship with God, in order to get back to that kind of state Adam and Eve had before the fall and even beyond that, you are going to have to pass through that sword. That's the sword of the Word of God. It's going to have to cut all the flesh off of you before you're going to be able to get back into that state of relationship with God. And it's a flaming sword, which I think is interesting because of the stages you see in the New Testament, the process God takes us through of baptisms that are talked about. There is water baptism, spirit, and fire. And fire is that final instrument that purges out whatever is left within that can't enter into the presence of God. So isn't it interesting? It's a flaming sword. I mentioned that during the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day, the builders built with swords girded on their thighs. You can see that in Nehemiah 4. The reason I bring that up in a symbolic context, it was a literal occurrence. It actually happened. It was a historical story. But some of the events in the days of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai, and Zechariah that are describing the restoration of Israel coming back from Babylon may have symbolic pictures of the restoration of the church. And you notice that when they're rebuilding the wall, all of the individuals labored in a very specific way. It says, some of the ones on the wall, every one with his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. The builders, every one had his sword girded by his side, and there builded. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me, talking about being by Nehemiah. 
In those pictures, you can see potentially the Word of God, if you're looking at that as a type and a shadow of the restoration of the church. When we're rebuilding the church, we're going to have to keep our sword closed because I'm going to tell you what, you're not going to be building right. You won't be able to protect the people of God from exterior enemies without the sword of the Word of God. Another passage that people very often use typologically, meaning that it's a real story, it's real people, but there may be a picture in the story of something spiritual that's bigger than just the actual events, is during the time of Samuel, when the Israelites were being persecuted by the Philistines, and the Philistines would not let any of the Israelites have a smith in the land that could allow them to build the kind of weapons the Philistines had. Some have taken that as a picture of what the church is like in the wilderness, that the false church would not allow the people of God to have access to the word of God. They didn't. You know how that Romish church was, right? You know that it was a capital crime if you had the word of God. I've talked about it many times. Some of the stories regarding that are so stark and so incredible. Some of the ones that's always struck me is ones where people didn't even have an actual piece of the word of God. They didn't take the Latin Bible and translate it into English. They had just read some of the Latin Bible and they were quoting it in English or quoting it in German to someone else and got burned at the stake for it. For daring to quote the word of God in any language other than Latin, they were killed for it. For daring to copy the word of God, translate it into a language other than Latin. You know why Latin? Because they knew the people can't read Latin, so we can tell them whatever we want to say the word of God says. It doesn't matter what their reason for saying they did it to keep it in this holy language. There's nothing holy about the Latin language. It comes from the Roman Empire. It doesn't come from Israel. There's nothing holy about it. Greek language would have been better than the Latin language. It would have been closer to the original language of the New Testament, for one thing, because much of the New Testament was written in Greek. The Latin language has nothing holy in it. In fact, in some ways, it has a lot of things that are unholy. And yet that church so defended the Latin language that if you dared to take any of the scriptures and translate them into your native tongue, if it was Spanish or English or whatever tongue, they would kill you for it. It was a death sentence to translate the scripture into a language you could read to the common people. They didn't want anybody reading it to the common people. They wanted control of it. And some have used this historical story in the book of 1 Samuel. It's in the 13th chapter, in the 19th verse. Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the cultures and for the forks and for the axes and to sharpen the goads. So it came to pass in the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and with Jonathan his son was there found. So there was almost nobody that had swords in that day in Israel because the Philistines wouldn't let them have any smiths. They must have threatened them, intimidated them, and said, if we find out you got a smith, we're going to come kill him or take him away captive. They kept them from being able to produce swords. You know why? So they couldn't resist their power. They would have had a technological advantage if they were the only ones who could produce swords and spears and the Israelites couldn't. And that's really what was going on during the Dark Ages when the church was controlling the word of God, which is also called a sword, is that they were controlling it because they wanted the advantage over the people so the people could never challenge them. Exactly what the Philistines were doing in not allowing there to be any smiths. Now, if you want to get really typological and you thought this was a typological picture, which it very well likely is, those smiths could be a picture of translators or teachers, anybody that could actually take the word of God and translate it into a language that people can understand. But they wouldn't allow it, would they?
Now, we're getting into some deep typological things. I don't want to get you all tangled up in there, but I'm just showing you all the different ways that the term sword might be able to be used in the Bible. One way that you could tie it to what I just was talking about is by going to Revelation 6. When it's talking about these four horses that come forth, which we believe are a picture of the falling away of the church from the time of the early church all the way down into the time of the Romish church, notice what you see when he opens the second seal. This is after the period of the early church. The first horse is a white horse. And there's glory and power associated with that white horse. There's overcoming associated with that white horse. We believe that's a picture of Christ in the early church. Then the second horse is when the church began to degenerate and go downhill to fall away. When he had opened the second seal, Revelation 6.3, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Now, this is not a positive image here. This isn't something good in this passage. You can especially see that as you look at the black horse and the pale or greenish-gray horse that follows. This is a degeneration. This is going down. Each stage drops from this point forward to something worse. That great sword was very likely the word of God that that Babylonish church used it to abuse the people. Instead of using the word of God to save people, they were using it to abuse and to imprison and to persecute. And they would use the word of God in ways that was blasphemous and ways that would give them what they would claim to be authority to bring persecution on their enemies. You see this down into the 7th and 8th verse when it's talking about the pale horse. I looked to behold a pale horse. His name that sat on him was death, and hell followed after him. This is after the church had fully and entirely fallen away into that Babylonish state. Power was given unto him over the fourth part of the earth, which is about the part that that Romish church held power over in its heyday, in its highest point. It had about a fourth part of the civilized world under its control. To kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. All those things are symbolic, you know. It's not talking about a literal sword. It's not talking about literal hunger. It's hunger for the word of God. You remember the scripture that says, they'll look all over looking for the word of God. They'll hunger and thirst after it. Well, there was a terrible hunger and thirst for the real thing in those days, and it was not available to many people. They were killing people with the sword, which is the very way they're described in the book of Revelation. I'm going to come back to that in just a second to give you a couple verses for that to show you how all this ties together. You can see these will all start to connect if you get these verses. If you haven't heard this before, it may be too much to digest tonight sitting at the table with this plate in front of you. It may be too much on your plate. You ever gone to a buffet or somewhere and put too much on your plate? Usually I don't put too much on my plate the first time. No matter how much I get on there, I can eat the first set. It's when I go back and try to fill it up like I did the first time, I may not be able to get through it. But this could be too much on your plate for one night. So I want you to take these verses I'm talking about tonight, take them home and look at them, consider them, think about how they connect to one another. Another historical example is Ahab and Jezebel, which during their period, one of the things they were known for is slaying the prophets of the Lord with the sword, which could picture the very same thing. Ahab and Jezebel's time in Israel is a very strong parallel picture of what the condition of the church was in the wilderness. What Elijah did and all the other things we've talked about in the past. 
It could be that they're slaying the prophets of the Lord as the sword was, anybody that rose up. And there were many. There were men of God that rose up to try to challenge that Babylonian church from its earliest days, but especially from the time after 1000 AD, you saw ones like the Valdensians and the followers of Wycliffe and on into the Reformation. Men of God were standing up and you know what they would do every time they stood up? They would kill them. You know what authority they said they had the power to kill them with? The word of God. You know why they said they were justified in burning them at the stake or taking their heads? Because they were the ones who were the wielder of the power and authority of the word of God. And they were the ones who could interpret what it said. So if those men dared to challenge their interpretation, they used that wrong interpretation of the word of God as the reason for their judgment. Do you see how I'm connecting these? That the idea of someone using the sword in the wrong way? It's just like what you see with that harlot in the 17th chapter of Revelation when it says she had a golden cup in her hand that was full of abominations. You know that's not a real cup. That represents something. That golden cup very well might have represented the word of God that she had filled with her abominable doctrines and traditions and other things. And she was making the nations drink of it and they were becoming drunk by it. They were becoming addicted you start drinking alcohol, you can become addicted to it. They were becoming addicted to the teachings and traditions of that church. They didn't know what else would feed their spiritual need. They had no other way to feed their spiritual need. And it was a poison and blasphemous brew that was in that golden cup that she had put in there. So there's all these pictures and pieces, but they're deep and you have to make the connections. Proverbs 5 is another passage that some people use in a multidimensional way to refer to the false church. When you see this strange woman in the book of Proverbs, it's talking about a woman that is an immoral woman that would tempt a young man to do something immoral. That's the simple and surface level meaning of that. But the language associated with this strange woman is far deeper than just an immoral individual. It's clear that it represents something much deeper than that. And on one level, it could represent false religion that is a tempting influence, but certainly it represents the false church says in the fifth chapter of Proverbs, the third verse, the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb. Her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Now remember all these verses because I'm going to bring you to a verse in a few minutes that'll connect all these and show you why I'm making the connections that I am in saying this is talking about the false church, Babylon. Goes on to say, her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell. Lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life, her ways are movable. If you're looking for the path of life, which we all are when we're trying to seek the Lord, you're going to have a hard time finding it in that church because her ways are movable. You know what moves them? Her own traditions, her own political machinations, her own allowance of culture and other things to dictate her direction. Hear me now, therefore, O you children, part not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh the door of her house, lest thou give thine honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel. Lest strangers be filled with thy wealth, and thy labors be in the house of a stranger. And thou mourn at the last, when thy flesh and thy body are consumed, and say, How have I hated instruction? My heart despised reproof, and I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined mine ear to them that instructed me. Now, all those verses, I want you to connect to a couple verses in the 13th chapter of Revelation. I'm going to read through the first 10 verses and come back and connect a couple things. John said, I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat 
and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty-two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name. This is the false church. This beast is the false church. The deadly wound that it took to his head was the Reformation. There were a lot of times that men rose up that tried to strike a wound to that false church. I told you, the Waldensians tried to strike a wound. The Cathari tried to strike a wound. I mean wound it to the point where it would let them go, if nothing else. Sometimes if an animal gets a hold of you, you're going to have to strike it a few times to cause it to let go of its grip, you know, because it doesn't want to keep getting hit, so to speak. They tried to strike it to let it to let them loose. Many of them were brutalized in their resistance to that church. And then on into Wycliffe and others that tried to strike that. It wasn't until the time of Martin Luther that the Reformation really took hold and the Catholic Church was split in a major way. And that was the wound, the deadly wound. The Reformation of the 1500s on was the deadly wound that beast took. But that deadly wound is going to be healed. That system is not dead. That system is still very much alive. And it's going to rise again, which is exactly what this last beastly element is talking about. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and overcome them. That's all the persecution. And that system is carried out against the people of God through the centuries and have yet to be carried out. And power was given him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity, now here's where it's going to give you some hope. He that leadeth into captivity, that's that church. That church is leading people into captivity, shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword, that church used the word of God as his excuse to brutalize individuals and to murder countless numbers of individuals. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. It's the sword of the word of God that's going to bring judgment down on that false system. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. That is in part what is being talked about in 2 Thessalonians 2. When it's talking about the man of sin, that man of sin is that office of that false ministry that is the head of that church. It says in the seventh verse of 2 Thessalonians 2, that the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now let us will let until he be taken out of the way. That word let is not the word let like we think of it today. It means to prevent. It means the opposite of what we think of as the word let. It's to hold something in check, to prevent it. Somebody was preventing that man of sin from rising and taking power. That papal office is what that man of sin is. Someone was preventing that kind of a man. Let's just make it real simple. Preventing a corrupted and paganized one-man ruler to rise up and rule over the people of God. Something was holding that possibility back. It was Christ through the apostolic ministry that was holding it back. And when that apostolic ministry finally was martyred off, the barrier that was holding that back, the dam that was holding that flood back was gone. It was removed and it was taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed. Once that authority is gone that was holding that in check, those apostles are not present. Then that will start to develop until that wicked one, that wicked individual, that wicked office will be revealed. But notice what's going to happen to that office and to that system as well. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. 
That's a spirit-anointed word of God that's going to bring judgment on that false system. So you can see how many varied ways the Word of God is referred to in the Scripture and sometimes very deeply symbolic ways that you're going to have to study and consider. Sometimes in very obvious ways, like Sister Cindy mentioned Ephesians 6, where it's talking about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Or Brother Kosa mentioned in Hebrews 4.12, where it's talking about how the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Or the passages where it's talking about Christ having a sword coming out of his mouth. You know why that might have been significant to the church at Pergamos? This is something you'd only know if you studied the culture, and it's something we talked about when we talked about the history and culture of that city. That city was one of the cities in the Roman Empire that the Roman government gave the authority that they had the right of the sword. If they granted a governor of a province the right of the sword, that meant that governor had the authority to take your life. He did not have to clear it through the Roman bureaucracy. He could kill people at his own will, which was a very big deal in some of those cities. If those rulers of those cities in the Roman Empire had that right, they had a lot more power and a lot more ability to threaten the people under them if they could just carry out executions without even having to go through any kind of judicial process involving the Roman Empire. So I almost wonder when Jesus was making this statement to him, if he wasn't saying it in two different ways, one might have been a very encouraging thing to them. You notice the last time he says it, it's in the 16th verse, when he says, repent or I'll come quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He's talking about how there's folks in there who have the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans in their church. And he said, I'm going to come and destroy them. You know what he was going to destroy them with? The sword of his mouth. The word of God was going to be the instrument that would judge them. But in the beginning, it almost sounds as if this has a little bit different connotation in the 12th verse that we read, when it says, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Because the very next thing he says after that, it seems to be positive. I know your works. I know what you're dealing with. I know where you're dwelling. That's where Satan's seat is at. Given that the leaders of this city had the right of the sword, it may very well be that when Jesus says this in the first part of the verse, he's actually saying it as an encouragement to them. You may be in a city where they think they have the right of the sword. They can just take your life at any time. But I am the one that has the sharp sword with two edges. I'm the one with the power of life and death. Which might have been a very encouraging thing for them to hear, given that they probably had that civil sword hanging over their heads all the time, the threat of being killed. I think his first statement, the 12th verse about having the sword, is a way of saying, I am the one with this power of life and death. I'm the one with the sword, the real sword, the sword that has the real power, so to speak. And then in the end, he's saying, in that very same sword, if some of the problems that are going on in this church are not corrected, that very same sword that very potentially he might have been referring to in a protective, positive way in the beginning, will be the instrument of judgment on your church if you're not careful, if you allow evil to go on in this church. One other thing I might mention about the sword of the Word of God I think is interesting. When you read some of the examples in the book of Acts of the preaching of the Word of God, it's interesting how several of them refer to the Word of God as a cutting or piercing type of an instrument. In the message Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in the second chapter of Acts, in the 36th verse, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, he was preaching the word of God to them. Listen to what it did. Now when they heard, they were pricked in their heart. See, the word of God is like a sword, isn't it? It can jab you, it can prick your heart. If it's sharp enough, you know, you may not feel it much, but they were feeling something. It pricked their heart enough, the sword of the word of God, they felt something. 
And their response to Peter and the rest of the apostles was, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And you know what Peter told them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promises unto you and to your children and all that are afar off. I've always loved those phrases where it says all that are afar off, you know, because that's us. If you have Jewish blood in you, you might argue you're their children in some kind of a way, but you're not the children he was talking about. He meant to you and the next generation and to all those that are afar off. We're those ones that are all afar off. That same promise is for us too. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Aren't you glad he called you? And with many other words that he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them by 3,000 souls. There's two more examples of this kind of language in Acts, and I'm going to close after that. But I think it's interesting how similar, it's not exactly the same word in the Greek, but it's interesting how similar these descriptions are. In the fifth chapter, 26 verse says, Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly, they're talking to the apostles who had been preaching Christ, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, and this is how you better always answer somebody when they're giving that kind of a statement to you. We ought to obey God rather than men. Isn't that a fact? The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Remember what Peter had just said to the folks just three chapters before, and it pricked him to the heart, and their response was so beautiful. They're, just tell us what to do. That should always be your response when the word of God cuts you or pricks you. When you feel the word of God working on you, you should always say, just tell me what to do. Lord, I feel your hands in my clay. I feel you working on my life. Just tell me what to do. And that's what they did in response to the message. That is not what these religious leaders did in response to the message. But it's interesting how close the words were. Remember, it said it pricked them to the heart, the people on the day of Pentecost. And their response at being pricked at that jab of the word of God was, my Lord, tell us what to do so we can be right with God. When they heard, this is talking about the religious leaders of Sanhedrin, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. So when the word of God cut them, they responded by saying, let's kill these folks who are making these statements. One more example. Anybody know where it's at in the book of Acts? Stephen, Stephen, that's exactly right. Seventh chapter of Acts. Now, Stephen's words would have cut somebody to the heart for sure. He was laying the law down on these individuals, and it's the same kind of situation. Religious leaders, the religious leadership, standing before them. One of his last statements to them in the 51st verse, pretty harsh for a young man to be saying this to the religious leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, who were the highest and most powerful religious leaders in the entire country. And here's a, what I think was a very young man standing in front of them and not only preaching Jesus, which had to drive them to murderous intent, but then he made statements like this, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers so do you. Which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one. 
of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers. Stephen was doing this kind of rapid fire, you know. Notice that he kept doubling it up. It wasn't just stiff-necked. It was stiff-necked and uncircumcised. It wasn't just in heart. It was in heart and ears. He would just tap, 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 tap. It wasn't just a jab. It was a jab and a punch and a jab and a punch just over and over. The prophets have they persecuted and they've slain them. So they've persecuted and they've murdered. Notice how he keeps doing this in pairs. You're betrayers and murderers. Not just betrayers, you murdered him too. And again, another double tap, so to speak. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and yet you've not kept it. They were cut to the heart. They weren't cut to the heart like the men on the day of Pentecost. They were cut to the heart like the religious leaders in the fifth chapter. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. You know what cut them to the heart? The word of God did. They didn't like it. It probably made them even angrier that it was the word of God that was cutting them to the heart because they thought they had the word of God. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now, I want you to think about this. You realize when Stephen made that cut, anybody that would have accepted that would have been separated unto life. But because they responded when they were cut by the word of God by gnashing on them with their teeth, and as you know, in the next few verses, murdering the young man, They were cut off from God. They could have been chosen. You realize if you were standing there and heard that message and you said, oh my Lord, just like the men on the day of Pentecost, what have we done? We killed the just one. That's what Stephen accused him of. He said, you betrayed and murdered the son of the living God. And if that word of God that cut them had caused them to respond by saying, what have we done? What have we done? Tell us how we can fix this, which is what happened to the brethren on the day of Pentecost. Tell us what to do. Instead, they decided to kill the messenger, didn't they? Just like the brethren wanted to do to Peter and the rest of them when they captured them. They wanted to take their lives. Remember, they took counsel out to kill them. The Word of God will create those kind of responses. It is that kind of a weapon. You'll either get angry at the fact that it's cut you or pierced you, or you'll have enough sense to realize God is doing this because he's trying to get my attention, and I want to be in right relationship with him. If I feel the Word of God cutting me, then Lord, tell me what needs to go. Tell me what you want to cut away because I just want to be right with you. Amen.